you're listening to the However Improbable podcast, a Sherlock Holmes book club that narrates and discusses Arthur Conan Doyle's classic tales. We're reading them in the order they occurred in the lives of the great detective and his good doctor. Holmes himself famously said that there's nothing new under the sun, but we're willing to give him a run for his money. I'm Sarah Kolb. And I'm Marissa Mercurio. This week, one of the most truly horrible stories in the canon presents us with a compelling case to never work customer service. Along with some deeply disturbed family dynamics and an iconic heroine, it's The Adventure of the Copper Beaches. The Adventure of the Copper Beaches was published in The Strand in 1892. It's featured in the short story collection, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. It's actually the last story in the, that collection. What a note to end that <laughs> book on. Baring Gould has some pretty specific dates for the story, Friday, April 5th to Saturday, April 20th, 1889. To listen to our audio adaptation of the story, go back an episode. We'll be here. First, let's recap this truly creepy tale. It opens with Holmes lamenting to Watson that there are truly no good crimes happening any longer. He uses a recent plea from a governess named Violet Hunter to demonstrate that he's really hit rock bottom. But Violet Hunter herself quickly proves him wrong. She's had a very bizarre job offer and wants Holmes' advice on whether or not to take it. A rather sinister man with the great villainous name of Jeffrey Rucastle wants to hire her as a governess for a child in his house, which is called the Copper Beaches, under the stipulation that Violet cut off her long, very distinctive copper-colored hair. Because of the pay, she ends up taking the position, even though she's kind of nervous about it. But Holmes suspects something strange is happening. Um, Sure enough, Violet reports to say the household is bizarre, the servants are cold, the kids she's watching is cruel, and the Rucastles make really unusual demands of her. Mr. Rucastle sometimes asks Violet to wear a particular electric blue dress and sit in a window of the house where he tells her stories or has her read for hours at a time. One time, she sees a man through the window watching the house. Strangest of all, there's a locked wing in the house she's forbidden to enter. And with Holmes's help, Violet discovers the locked wing is actually a prison for Rucastle's daughter, Alice. Ugh. Yeah. Rucastle hired Violet, who has a very similar distinctive hair color to his daughter, as a stand-in to throw off her fiancé, the man watching the house. Alice was supposed to receive an annuity from her late mother's will, and Rucastle attempted to claim it for himself and stop her from marrying. His genius plan? Locking her up and hiring someone to impersonate her. In the end, Rucastle is attacked by his own dog. Alice escapes and marries her fiancé, and Violet ends up the principal of a girl's school. So, the adventure of the Copper Beaches. I had no idea how to summarize this in a way that was, like, concise. Because that's the plot, but it's so much creepier than just even talking about the events. It's certainly the most unsettling, I think, of all the stories that we've read so far, and probably all together of Mm -hmm. the entire canon. It's always the one that sort of skeeves me out. Yeah, it makes my skin crawl. Like, reading it really Mm -hmm. made me feel gross. Yeah, there were a few moments uh, in particular that I was like, oh, this is is so, so uncomfortable. So, for example, when she is, Violet is recounting to Holmes and Watson about this job interview, essentially, that she has with Rucastle, Mm -hmm. uh, there's this moment where he says something about um you know you had to you would have to obey these little commands which me my wife might give and i'm like oh like mm." it just it feels so menacing and sinister and the 
the scene, like basically what he does is he has her sit in this window with the dress on, that's the daughter's dress, to like throw off the fiance. And he tells her these really funny stories and she laughs and laughs until her stomach hurts and he like never responds emotionally. He's just like mm-hmm. rattling off stories at her for hours. It's so creepy. Yeah, and what a villainous name. Jeffro Rugasso. Yeah, it really does rival Grimsby Roylot. They are partners in um, being really, really awful to their children to get their kids' money. Yeah, These yeah. Guys. Like, very similar vibes to the Speckle mm-hmm. Band. I th- they get along. I, yeah, um, I think he's up there in, like, the scale of just, like, nasty people in the Holmes canon. Is yeah, and it's Rugasso. so realistic, too, which is right? what it makes it so skin-crawling. Yeah, I think that is a really good point where it's... You could see this, like, a version of this happening in some way. It's obviously, like, a little ridiculous, but just, like, trying to control the daughters in your life for their mm-hmm. money and prevent them from leaving the house. Like, it's, you know, that stuff is stuff you see happen. It's really gross. Yeah. And it's uh, even more unsettling when you think about, in the 19th century, how easy it was for him to do this for so long. Right. You know, now I think it'd be a little bit harder, but, you know, over 100 years ago, I think... You're not going to be missing. You know, this, her fiancé is really the only person looking for her. Mm-hmm. And she's described, Alice is described as being mm-hmm. kind of, like, quiet and soft-spoken, and she doesn't have much of a social life. And so she, like, vanishes pretty much, and only one person really is concerned enough to figure that out. Maybe the fiancé should have gone to Holmes for help, and this story would have wrapped up quicker, but Violet Hunter saves the day. Could have so been a good, good idea. <laughs> right. Uh, before we get too much in the weeds, though, we should talk about where we are with our timeline because this is the first story that we've actually tackled in quite a while, and we want to probably refresh our memories about where we were. The big events that have happened recently and how Holmes and Watson are doing and, and kind of what happened. So we're in the spring of 1889. Um, in the last two stories, we did two of the novels before we kind of took a break, right? And then in the last year, Watson met and got engaged to Mary Morstan, and they also had their little Dartmoor field trip in Hound of the Baskervilles. <laughs> I think at this point, are we thinking that Watson and Mary are married, or do we think they're probably still engaged? Or That's is that something we're going to have to figure out question. as we go? I, there's no mention of her or the marriage or engagement in the story. And there's nothing sure. to indicate that Watson's not living at Baker Street. So my feeling is that they're probably engaged and haven't gotten married yet, but it's a little bit hard to say because it is just a non-entity in this story. Um, may as well yeah. have not occurred, but in our chronology, it very much has occurred. So Yeah, and of course, Conan Doyle was not writing them in chronological order, so it's not like he was demarcating, oh, Watson's engaged, Watson's married. What about Holmes and Watson's relationship? Where are we with that? We get a really great scene that sort of opens the story. I love the opening. Where they have this kind of, like, bickering situation. I mean, it's really classic, like, opens on them sitting in the living room. Hope smokes a very distinctive pipe that's, like, based on his mood, if you want to talk about that in a second. And they're having a little bit of, like, a bickering, which is friendly, and then gets a little barbed, and then it ends up being friendly about... (laughs) um, Sort of the quality of the cases, but also it turns into Holmes digging on Watson's writing a little bit. And there's this little little moment that I really liked where like Holmes is, is critiquing his sensationalism and it's kind of like, you're missing the point of all of the work that I'm doing and people eat it up and da 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 da. <laughs> and Watson goes, he, he says, I cannot quite hold myself absolved from this charge of sensationalism which has been urged against my records. 
Um, Watson's a little bit put off that Holmes dislikes the color and life he's putting into their stories. Watson calls out Holmes' hypocrisy, at least in his head, in a funny mm-hmm. little moment here, too. Right. I think we've seen this kind of, like... Totally. Banter, Very familiar. bickering, friendly, but Watson's like, come on, man, we're back at the stories again. Like, I thought we solved this. Why are we arguing about it more? Yeah. Um, and I do like the little detail you me- you mentioned, the pipe. I like that once Watson sees Holmes reaching for his uh, cherry wood pipe, I yep. believe, that he's like, ugh... Okay, he's in he's in a bad mood. I know what this is gonna be. <laughs> um, it's like it, it was kind of unjust, but now we're getting a little bit too too serious about the criticism. Yeah, what does he say? That it's the pipe he smokes when he was in a disputatious rather than meditative mood. Like really good something, turn of phrase yeah, there. Something um, like that. Cool. I also think this is not related to their dynamic, but we have this really beautiful scene that kicks off the story that I wanted to read, um, mm-hmm. which I think just sort of like sums up the misty London vibes of a lot of these cases. Watson writes, It was a cold morning of the early spring, and we sat after breakfast on either side of a cherry fire in the old rooms at Baker Street. So they're definitely in Baker Street. A thick fog rolled down between the lines of dun-colored houses, and the opposing windows loomed like dark, shapeless blurs through the heavy yellow wreaths. Our gas was lit and shone on the white cloth and glimmer of china and metal, for the table had not been cleared yet. That's just like really cozy and domestic little picture that he's painted for us. It is lovely. I, think- I like that Watson, that what he says here is that Holmes lectures him on his literary shortcomings. It is good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which just makes him feel like very sort of long suffering and put upon in this dynamic mm-hmm. where I mean, the, kind of what I'm getting a little bit. It's like, all right, Holmes is bored. Holmes hasn't had a case in a while. He's like really upset with yes. the quality of the cases. Now he's complaining about my writing again. This is what happens. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Yeah. He's like, well, I don't have any good, uh, you know, puzzles to solve. So I'm zeroing like, in I'm on your writing your ire today yeah oh, i know right um. speaking of holmes's cases of late i do want to talk about some of the most famous lines coming out of this story and also returning to this idea of holmes understanding his cases and his involvement in his cases as an art yeah, there's really good stuff in this story and some of the, like the most famous descriptors of Holmes talking about his research. Sometimes you kind of forget what story they're located in, but there's a bunch of really iconic lines in here. Yeah, and I, I think the, the way that Holmes opens the narrative com- where he says to the man who loves art for its own sake and then embellishes upon, you know, the shortcomings of the crimes of late and that fact that there are no creative... Uh, criminal men anymore. I I think that harkens back to the very first story of A Study in Scarlet, where Holmes compares his work, uh, you know, as as a scientist, as a deductionist, as an art. And I think it's really interesting to think about Holmes as someone who considers himself an artist. And I think, of course, the phrase art for its own sake was a really hot term. And at the Fendisiac, at the turn of the century, um, you know, this idea of decadence and art for its own sake, it sort of brings to mind Oscar Wilde, perhaps. Um, But of course, Holmes is applying it to his own rather unusual work, rather than what we would think of when we think of art for its own sake. The whole start of the story is that he's really stuck on this idea that he's despairing against types of cases. And he uses this letter that Violet Hunter sent him as an example of 
He goes, as to my own little practice, it seems to be degenerating into an agency for recovering lost lead pencils and giving advice to young ladies from boarding schools. And then he says, I've touched bottom. So he's like, I've hit rock bottom. Governesses <laughs> are writing to me for help. And obviously he gets proven wrong. And he has this like man, or at least criminal man, has lost all enterprise and originality. Idea, we've seen him express this kind of frustration about even the criminals aren't doing creative crime anymore. <laughs> Which is a funny sentiment to have for a detective who should be stopping crime. But, mm-hmm. you know, rather and selfish he- of him. <laughs> <laughs> he he expounds with, I think, two of his most famous mm-hmm. lines mm-hmm. in all of the canon, the first of which is, crime is common, logic is rare. He goes on to say, it's upon the logic rather than upon the crime that you should dwell, of course, telling this to Watson, you know, you, you've you've spent too much time talking about the, the, the crime and not so much the logic that is required to unravel it. And he goes on to say, you have degraded what should have been a, f- a course of lectures into a series of tales. He's not in a good, um, like, he's being kind of nasty. He is being, yeah, Watson's pretty like, rude. Yeah, but they're paying the rent. Leave me alone, man. Mm-hmm. Conan Doyle at this time begins to essentially list his greatest hits. Yeah. <laughs> up until Copper Beaches. Yeah, it, this is a really funny bit. Um, I mean, it's sort of like a list of some of my favorite cases, but Holmes uses a bunch of examples of some of these cases, which I think were like some of the best received as the sorts of cases they're taking. And I think it's really interesting that the things he's mentioning don't treat crime in a legal sense, really, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, he uses Scandal in Bohemia, The Man with the Twisted Lip, The Noble Bachelor, and A Case of Identity. I think all of which we've talked about. They're all stories where I think Holmes is kind of skirting the edge of the law or making his own judgment calls or nosing his way into stuff kind of of his own volition, or sometimes, like, in the case of The Scandal in Bohemia, actively sort of making bad judgment calls and on the wrong side morally of the situation. Right. And then they also mention the, the blue carbuncle, right? Which is a case that starts as this like little whim and then turns into an actual thievery. Finally, you know, he's lamenting all these <laughs> past cases, his old glories. Violet shows up. <laughs> yes, and Violet saves the day. She is one of the most, I think, memorable Conan mm-hmm. Doyle heroines. What do we think about Violet Hunter? I've always thought she was really interesting. She's got a line later in the story when she's telling Holmes, I, oh, I, I could have run away, but my curiosity was too strong mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. flee. She says, of course I might have fled from the house, but my curiosity was almost as strong as my fears. My mind was soon made up. So I, I think you do get the impression when she arrives that Holmes notes too, Holmes and Watson both note that she's, you know, well put together she's intelligent she's got a good head on her shoulders and her intuition that you know something is deeply troubling here is correct yeah yeah i really like this description that we get when she like comes in to meet them for the first time i think it's a really vivid depiction of a woman that's not sort of romantic or sensationalized Mm -hmm. and so watson describes her she was plainly but neatly dressed with a bright quick face freckled like a plover's egg Mm -hmm. and the brisk manner of a woman who has had to make her own way in the world i can really picture her i think she's like business-like and kind of serious and very self-possessed the right person to be in the middle of this really creepy mystery because she keeps her head and is able to like move things along and help things come to a conclusion that's positive overall (laughs) Yeah, she conducts herself in a way that allows 
her, both herself to understand what is happening. She does a little bit of investigating on her own, mm-hmm. and then she works really well with Holmes to wrap up the mystery. I also think this story is a really good example. We've seen a couple of times where Holmes initially sort of dismissing her problem as something trivial or not worth his time and ends up being really fascinated by the story that she brings to them, even initially where she's sitting down being like, this is this weird job interview I had and I'm having this feeling about it and I'm a little uncomfortable, but the pay is so good. What do I do? Help. Mm-hmm. Um, where she ultimately ends up taking the jobs. The plot progresses, but Holmes gets this initial like, there's something else going on here and I think we're going to hear from her again. So let's just hold off until we do. Like that's his response after they meet her the first time. He's kind of down and then obviously this case catches his interest, but he discounts the letter that she sends him and then pretty quickly is like, oh no, something's happening. This is pretty bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he's right. He is being proven wrong not only about women, but also just that the cases are... Like, mm-hmm. this is another just good example of Holmes being like, oh, everything's boring, women are flighty, and then being instantly proven wrong. <laughs> yeah, with, like, one of the nastiest sort of series of events that we've seen yes. in a minute, so... And before we uh, focus on those series of, event- of events, let's talk a little bit about the very end of the story. Because it ends on a very strange uh. and somewhat befuddling statement by Watson, which I would love to know what you make of this. Yes. Because when I read it, I was like, what? Watson, what? Because yeah. Watson writes, as to Miss Violet Hunter... My friend Holmes, rather to my disappointment, manifested no further interest in her once she had ceased to be the center of one of his problems. And then he goes on to say she's the principal at the scroll school and so on. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> you know, I, I when I read this, I was like, that is a strange sentiment from yeah. Watson. I've just like got my head in my hands going, Watson, mm-hmm. read the room a little bit. But I do wonder, so now that we've talked a little bit about where we are in the narrative and the timeline, mm. wondering if Watson's a little bit like, oh, maybe, maybe Holmes can find a partner of his own, you know? That's a good Like, point. I'm off to get married. Maybe, you know, maybe Holmes could do the same thing. Obviously, he would never do this. But, and I don't know that this was taken, this is how Conan Doyle intended this uh, phrasing, but that doesn't matter. You know, we're reading in the context of our of our own timeline, and I don't know what did, what did you make of it. I think it could mean a lot of things. I also kind of have the assumption that he was kind of like, oh, like he thinks this woman is is smart, and maybe he's going to be interested in her. Which again, I'm like, Watson, you're so off base. This has never happened before. Mm-hmm. I don't know why this would happen now. I I kind of like this theory that he is a little bit swept away by the magicalness of his own falling in love with a client and planning his wedding. Right. <laughs> that he is sort of fantasizing this, like, situation which would never occur where he and Mary and Holmes and Violet Hunter are going on double dates or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, regardless, I read this and I kind of was, like, head in my hands going, Watson, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what this means. Yeah. Also, Watson's sort of, like, writing this for the public, so maybe for some reason it's something he wants their readers to think to think is or is not. Maybe Holmes is getting tons of love letters and he's trying to say, like, look, he's not interested. <laughs> I love that idea. I love that idea of very Holmes subtly. just receiving various love letters, opening each one, hoping it's going to be an ooh and an interesting case, case, and, then it's and, like, and it's just a love letter uh, from someone. Governesses. <laughs> Sounds horrid. No, it's a funny note um, 
to end the story on. But I do like that Violet gets to make her way in the world and, like, runs her own school and is very yeah, successful. Yeah, she went from, like, struggling governess to someone with a little bit of uh, authority on her own. Yeah. I hope she's going to teach a whole bunch of preteen girls to also never take weird jobs. <laughs> yeah. That would, that would, if nothing else, <laughs> an important lesson to learn. Yeah. But on, on that note. Let's talk about the actual case, the location, uh, mm-hmm. and why I think it matters that it takes place outside of London, or at least yeah. outside of the city. Yeah, do we have any sense, the house is called the Copper Beaches, do we have any sense where outside of London it's located? Yeah, they take a train, they stay at some place called the Black Swan Hotel in Winchester. Oh, okay. To meet Violet, so they go through Hampshire on a train together to get up to the Copper Beaches house. Okay. So it is this, like, sort of suburban, isolated area, a little bit in the country. I really like, as Holmes and Watson are on their way there, which Holmes says something about, you know, the horrors of the country are, you know, are are much more unsettling than those of the city. He's talking about the various houses that are um, you know, sort of snug away from the city. And he says, I look at them and the only thought which comes to me is a feeling of their isolation and the impunity with which crime may be committed there. They always fill me with a certain horror. It is my belief, Watson, founded upon my experience, that the lowest and vilest alleys in London do not present a more dreadful record of sin than does the smiling and beautiful countryside. I really like this. Mm-hmm. It evokes a sort of gothic sensibility that yeah. I think is present in this uh, short story. I mean, I think we'll talk about some comparisons and um, recommendations for similar readings later, but I think an obvious comparison is Jane Eyre. Right. You know, locking, locking some lady up in your attic, and that, of course, being another sort of isolated location where these men are able to just use their authority to act in horrific ways Mm -hmm. and there's nothing really around them whether that be you know the law or a you know a populace that is going to you know rebel against what people are doing to say stop uh maybe locking your daughter lock your child in the attic Mm -hmm. and i think it speaks to this like larger question of you know, the gothic in the city versus the gothic in the countryside and the anxieties of which... The, the, the anxieties that remind me of, like, Wilkie Collins novels where yeah. it's, like, it's no longer these things that are happening abroad or, you know, outside of England, but they're happening within the heartland and they're mm. happening to the people that you know or the people who you live around. Um, and even more disconcerting is that it's not happening in the city, which has, like, slums and f- scary foreigners. And yeah, right. And, yeah, <laughs> and all kinds of people. But it's happening to, like, you know, horrible things are being done by, like, good, upstanding white British folk. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what is, like, sort of truly terrifying yeah. to the late 19th century reading populace. This really made me think along the lines that a lot of the cases where... Like, obviously, there are a lot of cases in centered in London where pretty nasty stuff happens and lots of drama is playing out. But a lot of the mm-hmm. 
the morally most bizarre and questionable all happen when Holmes and Watson get on a train together and go to these big old country houses like the Hound of the Baskervilles, like the Speckled Band. Those are the two that really come to mind that I think the mm-hmm. story is emulating both of those um, very strongly. It's kind of like totally. weird old families in their old family houses be- behaving badly. The narrative would look and feel very different if it was happening in London and in the city. It just wouldn't play out the same way because people would notice that something was going on here. And they would just like, yes. have more servants or more people coming and going or neighbors or policemen who are paying attention in a way that no one's watching what these people are up to. And that's how they get away with it. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that it's distinct from something like the Speckled Band, which is also happening in this isolated location, because in that story, a lot of the blame is placed on Grimsby Royalad having like been affected by yeah. his travels abroad. There's no suggestion of that in this story. It's a really like homegrown evil that is occurring in this narrative, which I think makes it even more like complicated or not complicated, but if I were a you know standard Victorian reading this or. Uh, what year did this come out? Uh, 1892? <laughs> but, okay, yeah. So if I were a, you know, regular old Victorian Joe reading this, I'd be mm-hmm. like, that's a little bit more unsettling than, like, saying that someone went abroad and they became, they were, like, infected, <laughs> yeah. you know, by those scary foreigners coming back to England rather than just, like, this guy is just evil. Mm-hmm. And for what? <laughs> Yeah, there's little to no sort of background information on Jeffro Rucastle and on the family. Kind of, it's just like, here he is, and here's his daughter, and we're just, this is just happening. We don't really get an explanation of the dynamics of their lives before this happened or how she was treated, even though we can imagine, like, kind of awfully. We've seen this idea of, like, upstanding British people being infected by service in India or going to the United States or whatever that is is not present in the story at all, which Mm-mm. probably makes it a lot more unsettling and makes people have to, in in people who are conscious readers think, oh, could that be happening to my neighbors in the big country house on the hill? I don't know. Maybe it is. Predates Agatha Christie a mm. little bit in mm-hmm. this way. You know, it's like really what Agatha Christie uh, made her money on was all these people in the sweet little countryside doing horrible things. Yeah, I, I totally think it emulates a little bit of the like, Miss Marple, you know, she's like going <laughs> totally. to a friend's house for a long weekend and then crime occurs. And then actually there's all of this like dark stuff beneath the surface dynamic, which Agatha Christie, of course, read, had her own opinions on Doyle, but obviously was inspired by him. Because um, <laughs> it could not, not be if you were writing detective fiction. But I, I do like that exchange between Watson and Holmes, where Holmes is like, you see all these beautiful things and I think of horror and... Watson just ends up saying, you horrify me. (laughs) He's got nothing else to say about that. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, Holmes is not wrong. And I think they have many experiences to sort of prove that this is the case. Yeah, I always like these ones that it feels a little bit more isolated, a little bit more focused on the countryside. And I always like Holmes and Watson taking a uh, train out somewhere to solve a mystery. We did neglect to mention the other famous line. If you would like to read that. This is this is probably one of my favorite lines in all of the Holmes canon. Yes, and I also think you hear it in, like, every adaptation ever, which is, data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. It's really good, and it yeah. refers to this moment between Violet 
visiting Holmes and Watson at Baker Street for the first time, and about two weeks elapse before they Mm -hmm. hear from her again, when Holmes and Watson are like, something horrible is probably happening right now, and we just (laughs) have to wait um, to hear from her, because Holmes says he can't make any deductions or move forward without any evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they... I do think this is an interesting dynamic where they very much have a sense that something is about to go down with Violet, but mm-hmm. they don't have enough information to really tell her, and she takes this job, and they kind of are just, like, waiting to yeah. see how horrible it actually gets. Because it is, from just the narrative that she tells them, so uncomfortable right off the bat yeah. that Holmes and Watson are like, obviously something is afoot here. Things are going to go awry, but all we can do is pace around our apartment and yeah. uh And, and kind wait. of wait for word, yeah. Um, I also wanted to, I found a description of the house, the Copper Beaches itself, which mm, okay. sort of vibing with this, these sort of gothic inspirations is described as being a very creepy place. Um, and so this is, I think, is Violet sort of describing it to Holmes and Watson, but she says, The house is beautifully situated, but it is not beautiful in itself, for it is a large square block of a house, whitewashed and all stained and streaked with damp and bad weather. There are grounds around it, woods on all three sides, and on a fourth a field which slopes down to the Southampton High Road. And then there are a clump of copper beaches immediately in front of the hall door, which is what it's named after. I I, I like that this, the building itself is sort of like sinister and imposing and dirty and impacted by the weather which sort of reflects the things that are happening inside of it. I always like when authors do that. I love a house that It is that very evocative. You. Yes. Yes. Very Shirley Jackson. <laughs> very Shirley Jackson. Um, are there any other details of the actual narrative that you want to talk about or any like particular moments that stood out to you? Oh, yeah. I think what's really interesting about the structure of this story is that like Holmes and Watson, they he like hear Violet's account some t- in Baker Street. Some time goes by. They get on the train. They meet her at this hotel. And then she tells them all of the details of what has played out and her experiences and all of the strange things mm-hmm. happening. They actually do very little investigating. Yes. Violet does most of the like poking around and I really, putting really clues like together. That. And she like breaks into the wing that she's not allowed to go into on her own and gets in trouble for it. Um, I think she's very intrepid. And it's sort of filling that detective role because they're not physically in the house to do that kind of investigating. So I think that's a really fun um, piece. And I also think that, like, Holmes is a little impressed at the account that she gives and all of the details that she's collected, which I think is kind of a cool piece of it. Um, where sometimes he berates too. Watson for not saving the right details. Yeah. But clearly he's able to, like, figure out what's happened based mm-hmm. on um, – they do go to the house eventually, but it's sort of, like, at the very, very end of things when things have yes. escalated. I, there's two moments, one of which you, you um, mentioned, that really stand out to me amongst her investigation or the things that she just, like, stumbles upon. Um, the first one is when she opens that cabinet and finds that bundle of hair Ugh. that is Alice's, but she is like, is this my own hair? Yeah. What is going on? It's really unsettling because it's, it's so like, creepy. at that time, you don't, you don't know if it is her own hair. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really creepy. And either way, if you've just come across like some woman, like a whole bunch of hair, hair that looks exactly like your own. A, yeah, in a cabinet, like 
you know, Victorians kept hair for various reasons. A lot of times after a loved one passed away, keeping, like, a lock for their mm-hmm. hair. Or, like, but your not, children. like, or, yeah. your whole head of hair. Yeah. And, I'm, like, and not... I'm imagining, right, that she had, like, very, very long hair, and then they yes. cut it into a little bob, so it's, like, a whole mm-hmm. ponytail of yeah. very distinctively and colored hair. Of course, it's the likelihood of coming across hair that is your exact texture and color is going to be super, unlikely and really super creepy. Yes. <laughs> I would have the other run away if I was her. Yeah, it, it's it's I mean good on her that she sticks it out, but also yikes. yikes. The other scene that I think is truly menacing is when she is going up to that wing and um oh, yeah. castle stops her and he is like, oh, I, I have a, a, a dark room up there because I do photography. <laughs> and he's kind of like laughing and joking, but she's like, there's no smiling. There was no humor in his voice. It is just threatening. Mm-hmm. And it really makes you worry for her safety. Yeah. The line that I like in this sort of paragraph where she say, she says, they talk of a woman's instinct. Perhaps it was woman's instinct, which gave me that feeling. Um of, of she's just like something is wrong here and mm-hmm. this man is lying to me and what do i do yeah and the whole narrative is just imbued with this the sense of violence you have the yeah. dog on the premises which is um you know later almost kills through castle and yeah. then you have this small child who likes to like crush bugs and like torment yeah. anything that is like weaker than i also himself. don't like i'm not 100 percent sure where the kid came from like, is, is this Rue Castle's kid? Is it just a random kid? I'm, I'm a I little think unclear. it's his child by this new marriage. Oh, okay. I yeah. guess that makes sense. Because um, um. she's, but she's a lot, because she's a lot younger. She's like around 30, I think, or not yeah. even quite 30, whereas he's like at least 45 or mm-hmm. older. Well, clearly he has like a, a fully grown daughter from the previous marriage yes. where the wife died. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Whew. So it's just, I think overall, one of the most violent or at least not outrightly violent but the threat of violence is so endemic to the story it's one of the most unsettling and i think just in terms of conan doyle's women it's one of the most interesting female characters that he has and also one of the most interesting plots he's put women in because i think a lot of his uh narratives where he's particularly empathetic towards women is when women are in a sort of financial situation where um, it's very obvious that men can take advantage under British law or under, you know, the Victorian social mores that make it easier to do things like this. And he's not a feminist, but he, he, (laughs) of course, (laughs) but he does identify a couple of, like, real issues that women uh, we're experiencing in the 19th century, which was financial abuse. Yeah, a lot of his narratives around women are concerned with them having control of their money or men, people trying to take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you could argue that, like, Violet makes the decision. She takes this job because she needs money and because it pays yes. unusually well. Um, she also probably could have figured something else out if she was really in that position. And then Alice, obviously, is... is it, like, Violet is the main character, not Alice, who is the woman being taken advantage mm-hmm. of. Um, that's why I was thinking about, like, in a different version of the story, it would have been the fiancé, like, the, the man that Alice is supposed yeah. to marry who's coming for help, being like, 
this woman has gone missing and I think her dad is like trying to kill her for her money or something, but it's not. It's this completely sort of outside of the context working class girl who um, this line, it's, this is actually like in the same paragraph when she's talking about her instincts about like what's making her stick through this. And she says that she has a feeling of duty mm. um, to get to the bottom of what's going on. Um, and this is like That's when really she's being threatened by Rue Castle and is like Loki kind of afraid for her life and really unsure yeah. what's going on um, right before she goes to home. So that's she's being driven by something that like she has the sense that she is a, has a duty to get to the bottom of the situation because maybe she's the only one who can. Yeah, that is really interesting. I think this this is a story that merits multiple readings. Yeah. Um, I think I think she is one of the most like next to. Kitty and Irene Adler. She's one of the most compelling women in the canon. Totally and I think agree. Um, yeah. she gets a little overlooked and I would like more people to to pay attention to her because Me I love too. her very much. Yeah. Um why don't we talk about adaptations? Because yeah. there are a few. There are a couple. Um I mean I think I think this is a story that lends itself to visual adaptation very nicely, as any mm-hmm. of Holmes's uh, the home stories about big yeah. creepy houses do. Atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. Um, So this, a really, really early adaptation, there was actually a short silent film made in 1912. um, And it was one of the only sort of silent film adaptations that were supervised by Doyle himself. So it was made while Doyle was still living, which is really interesting. interesting. Um, There were eight of them, and this is the only one that survived for some reason. I don't know the details. Is it available? Um, I have no idea. So we'll have to go hunting. That'd be really cool. Um, And the plot is a little bit, it evolves a little bit. It kind of starts with Rue Castle trying to force his daughter to sign the rights away to her fortune and locks her up. Watson's not in the story, and I think Holmes is a little bit more active. Um, But nonetheless, Doyle was at least sort of tangentially involved in someone doing something else with his plots, which I think, like, by Mm. 1912 showed how little he really cared about that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then this one I'm mentioning just because it's super bizarre. So there's a 1975 novel called Sherlock Holmes's War of the Worlds by a guy named Manly Wade Wellman and Wade Wellman. It's a father and son, Manly Wade and Wade, father and son duo. Good. Um, (laughs) And it's a pastiche crossover of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells and Mm -hmm. this story and the Professor Challenger stories also by Doyle. Um, Holmes, Watson, and Professional Challenger are in London during the Martian invasion. Stop. (laughs) Loosely inspired by A Study in Terror, which is a thriller film. And in this book, Violet Hunter is the second wife of Watson, (laughs) mentioned in The Blanche Soldier. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Not enough talking about her silhouetted in light. No, he's like very, uh, very. Watson to go for her. Very businesslike about Violet Hunter, which, you know. We, he's newly engaged. He's not falling in love with anyone this week. Weirdly, of all, the story has a romantic relationship between Holmes and Mrs. Hudson. No, I've never heard of anything <laughs> like this. And Watson is like oblivious that. of that. So I don't, I have not read this, obviously. Can't say the context, but I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> That's his mom. Zoinks. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Most and famously, though, is the very wonderfully done Granada Holmes episode in 1985. Mm-hmm. Natasha Richardson, who was in Cabaret and Parent Trap, 
as Violet and a guy named Joss Joss Ackland as Jeffro Rootcastle, who is perfectly creepy. Um, He's so good at being so good. really creepy and menacing and also, like, very jovial. Yeah. When he's, like, telling the jokes. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. it's a really hard yeah. balance to strike. And he's someone that, like, I kind of recognized his face. He's been, he was in Hunt for Red October. He was Hunt, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and a bunch of, like, cool. Marple and Midsummer yeah. Murder, like, other PBS murder mystery stuff. So you probably have seen him elsewhere, mm-hmm. even just in the background. Um, yeah. What do you think about this? Granada oh, I mean, episode? it is one of the most rewatchable ones for me. It's one that I go to fairly often. I really like Natasha Richardson and yeah. I think she's great as Violet Hunter. I like the atmosphere. It really, I think, captures the tone of mm-hmm. the story and I think it's just one of the most um, compulsively watchable ones. Yeah. You know, where it's like, you want to know what's going to happen. And the scenes where she's, like, cutting off her hair, like, it's all very oh. evocative. Yeah, it's, it's so... It's a good page-to-screen adaptation. Yeah, it's really, really pretty true to the plot. I, I also think they capture that, like, domesticity of the, like, good-natured... Totally. ...squabbling that gets a little annoying, but then kind of, like, lands in a good place in a really nice way. I mean, it's it's what's not to love. It's the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the end is very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Watson, I guess we forgot to mention this, that Watson has a little action moment at the end of the story, because this dog attacks Rue Castle, and Watson shoots the dog. On the, (laughs) um, I I often read the illustrated Sherlock Holmes edition that I have, Mm -hmm. the original illustrations, and there is a illustration of watson shooting the dog and the caption oh, below says i blew its brains out <laughs> I was like, whoa. <laughs> whoa all right okay um yeah there's i mean it's a little weird that this is right after hound of the baskervilles where holmes shoots dog a dog on they're dogs just like dogs. shooting yeah. dogs all over the place right now yeah. I, they should stop doing that um but also people should stop training their dogs to attack them and yeah them forever that's my true advice anyway yeah um david burke is is very handsome and and burkish in this adaptation it's good and i love this sort of hints at the literary squabble that they have at the beginning uh when watson is reading his uh his retelling of the adventure and he's like reading it very nice and fancy and trying to impress holmes Uh at the end and Holmes just like quirks this eyebrow and it's <laughs> like the squabble is fantastic still, still ongoing yes. yeah yeah I love it very much I recommend watching it if you just need to watch one that's like feels like a quintessential Granada episode I think this is one that totally is maybe like a lesser known story mm-hmm. uh let's talk about some read-alikes I have a couple great or at least I know we mentioned Jane Eyre already mm-hmm. so let's yeah. just get out of the way obviously Jane Eyre uh the other one I wanted to mention was a, it's actually a very recent release, which mm. is, I'm going to recommend M- Emily Carroll's new graphic novel called A Guest oh. in the House. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read Emily Carroll before. She's one of my favorite, favorite um, graphic novelists. Yeah, I have. Um, I, have I really love one, Through the Woods, which is um, her collection of like short horror stories. Mm-hmm. This one is, I think, brand new. I think it came out this year. Nice. And it is about this woman who uh moves into this lake house with this man who she's recently married and his teenage daughter Mm. and she starts seeing the ghost of the woman who was his wife prior Mm -hmm. who maybe was murdered um and she goes there's like some attic stuff there's some investigation 
Um, it's that set in this like sort of isolated lake house um, where she doesn't really know anybody and is um, trying to figure out what happened in her husband's past. Mm. It's yeah, fun. That sounds awesome. It's creepy. I would like it's to. It's definitely creepy. Yeah, I, I will pick it up because I really loved that short story collection and I haven't read mm-hmm. any of her stuff in a minute, so. And then, did you have anything? Well, this is just mentioned on the Wikipedia page. I think this is just like a bizarre little factoid. Um, so this guy named Peter Cannon, who is a Lovecraft scholar, okay. question mark, has pointed to parallels between the adventure of the Copper Beaches and the picture in the house, which is a Lovecraft story about things happening in a cursed old house and stuff being locked in the walls, um, which I don't like have like necessarily condoned people reading Lovecraft. Obviously he's very <laughs> um, influential in a lot of these horror tropes, but I think it just like indicates the the tone of just like pervasive creepiness and horror that really is sunk through the story is that people are like comparing it to a Lovecraft story about ghosts and right. other universes driving people crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. I would like to see more adaptations and pastiches based on this story. Yeah. I, I think, think there's, there's a lot, a lot of, of material there. potential um, to really like dial up that sinister element, which like it's there. You don't have to work very hard to make that happen, but you could do some cool things with it. Yeah. And if anyone has any recommendations, I would love to hear them mm-hmm. because yeah. there's got to be stuff out there that yeah. we don't know about. Or what your favorite. I like that <laughs> attic stuff <laughs> in the description of that story made me laugh. Like what's yeah. your favorite story with attic stuff? <laughs> Which is a thing. A woman goes into the attic that she shouldn't be going into. <laughs> and there is a ghost or a haunted dresser or... A lady. Someone's dead body or mm-hmm. someone's ex-wife. Yes. Uh, the only other thing uh, that I did have sort of vague similarities, I, w- I was feeling vague similarities with, was like Bluebeard, the fairy tale Bluebeard. Oh, um, that's a good A one. little bit where, you know, you bring... In that, it's his wife where he's essentially this like serial killer of of his wives um and forbids them to go in a certain part of his home of course the woman is always um you know (laughs) curious and goes in there and then uh is killed um but then this new wife comes and she's you know yeah ultimately saved yeah i think that's a really compelling like something that didn't really occur to me and I think you often see this more with like romantic stories and men killing mm-hmm. wives and then bringing new wives into the dynamic where Violet is sort of filling like the literal physical role of the daughter in the parlor yeah. in her dress with her hair cut and then she mm-hmm. finds the actual daughter locked in the attic um yeah, uh, ah, yeah. that's Happy it that's Halloween how I feel about a month later yeah. <laughs> it's horrible I love it very much, but it's it's really a lot. It, it's um, deeply disturbing. Mm, yeah, we don't recommend. And one this. of the best. Yeah, my my advice for Violet is don't take this job. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Say no. <laughs> yeah. To customer service, creepy work in the country with little children. At any time. Uh, a guy who's like, I'll hire you for an unusual amount of money, but you must cut your hair and you must obey my little whims, then I think the best course is just uh, just to avoid that yep. man. Call the cops. Any and all eventualities. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, on that note, 
Join us next time for a story that we hope is a little less sinister, The Adventure of the Boscombe Valley Mystery. You can send your thoughts to howeverimprobablepod at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at improbablepod. Our website is howeverimprobablepodcast.com. You can find transcripts, the research behind the episode, and suggestions for further reading. If you enjoyed the show and can spare a moment, please rate and review. However Improbable is created by Marissa Mercurio and Sarah Culp, with apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, dear listeners, believe us to be very sincerely yours. <laughs>